I wonder what we can say or speak after Om. The perfect word in which is contained all the secret and all the truths. The secret of the integral truth we seek. The truth that Shurabindu brings down to earth. The truth of creation and all it contains within it and its goal is contained in this one single sound, Om. As one of the Upanishads puts it, it is composed of three sounds. Uh, the movement of creation going out. Oh, the all-encompassing, all-enfolding. Everything is contained within that consciousness which has gone out. Mm, everything is absorbed back and pulled towards that inevitably, almost one may say helplessly. It cannot be otherwise. That has gone forth into creation, that holds it within itself and that calls it unto itself and all that in one single sound, Om. The mother has said it is the signature of the Lord. So we take it that with the invocation of Om, the Lord has signed off the conference and he's here with us in the conference. The term conference is a bit uh, uh, jarring because it reminds us of something like an intellectual activity. By its very nature, the divine, by definition, <laughs> is beyond the grasp of the senses, beyond the grasp of the mind. If he was not that, he would not be worth seeking. If the divine could be understood and grasped by the human mind or any mind, even the most brilliant intellectual mind, he would be something less than the mind, this simple logic, plain logic. If he could be grasped by the senses, he would be something inferior to the senses. So he is secret, secret because, not because he is forever secret and wants to remain secret, but he is beyond the grasp of the senses and beyond the grasp of the mind and that is why he is worth seeking. It strains our mind, it stretches our senses to seek. And yet we cannot help but seek because he is within us, he is around us, he is everywhere. He is the source, the goal, the origin, the inspirer of all our dreams and all our works. Therefore man cannot help but seek him. So this is the fire that we all contain. The mother has, in one of her reminiscences, she has said that in one of her early meetings before coming to India, when she met someone and in a group he invoked, he chanted Om. And suddenly she saw the fire that has built the world's manifest right then and there. This is the power of Om, to invoke that reality in our midst. This is the fire we all carry and in, in a certain sense we are nothing if that fire is not there in us. What is man without the seeking? If we were simply satisfied with food and shelter and clothing and more food and more shelter and more clothing, maybe better food outlets, smarter dresses, bigger mansions. Man would not be man, but only a dignified animal. As Sri says, this seeking, this is the works of works, the ascent to divine life, is the work of works, the sole acceptable sacrifice without which man is nothing but an animal who has somehow managed to form himself in a little, a worm who has somehow managed to form himself in a little bit of speck, 
and mud and water in a little speck of mud and water emits the appalling immensities of this universe. So if you look at man from that perspective, purely material perspective, then he is nothing. Even if you look at earth, there are very nice, uh, nowadays the age of information technology, so we see all kinds of zooming, um, we, you know, we are shown the universe and then uh, slowly, slowly the galaxy, then the solar system, then earth and then again zoom out. And then we see that as we begin to zoom out, the earth almost vanishes, we can't even detect, is it just a little point somewhere? That is the material truth of our life. And this truth is very sobering, very humbling, because it puts our material existence in the right perspective. That in our own little bubble, we think we are big, but if we look at it from the cosmic being's point of view, we are so small, so small, infinitesimally small little speck or maybe less than that but this is not the only perspective of man it is given to us to have another perspective and that is the true manhood within us this transient from Savitri this transient earthly being if he so wills can fit his acts to a transcendent scheme he who now stares at the earth with bandaged, ignorant eyes can fill those orbs with the immortal sight. A seer, a strong creator is within. And a grandeur broods upon our days. Almighty powers, an unseen grandeur broods upon our days. Almighty powers are shut in nature's cells. There is a seed within this matter, this, this mud, this speck of water and mud, this plasma and gas and genes, as the scientists put it. And it is this seed which is worth the price. As Shurabindu at the end of Savitri says, all suffering was its easy price. Right now we weigh our suffering and say, oh, there is so much pain and trouble and struggle and difficulty. It is true, it's a fact of our present uh, situation. And we need to have all our empathy with that. But all this is leading towards a great consummation. And when we arrive at that, or even as we begin to arrive at that, we begin to discover that all suffering is its easy price. That, that's what is worth it. So this is the dual being within us. On one side, a material existence, small, full of struggles and difficulties, little joys and little griefs and little hopes, as Shurabindu puts it elsewhere in Savitri, a long, dim preparation is man's life, a circle of hope and toil and want, dragged out on matter's mud with life and mind. Long, dim preparation, dragged out on matter's ground. Births after births, life after life, years after years, days after days, the same life goes on in the ape, the bird, the beast and man. If you look at purely the physiological side of it, the physical existence, some modification, even if the scheme is on a larger scale, still as he says the plot is mean and small. It's still the same plot but at a grand scale. But as we see there is another possibility. And that is the unique situation of man and that is his unique difficulties. Psychologists speak about the conflicts and there are a lot of theories about conflicts. This conflict, that conflict, primal conflict. But real conflict within us is this. Shubindu puts it so beautifully in both Savitri and in a small poem. In Savitri says a cross between the demigod and the beast. 
A strange antinomy is his nature's rule. A riddle of opposites is made his field. Freedom he asks, but needs to live in bonds. He has need of grief to feel a little bliss. A need of darkness to find the light. This is our situation. A tree he compares human existence to a tree. A tree beside the sandy river beach, holding its topmost boughs to heaven, to the skies, like fingers to the heaven they cannot reach. This is the symbol of prayer. <laughs> In every culture, one way or the other, some kind of uplifting. But how far are the heavens? Like fingers to the heaven they cannot reach. This is the soul of man, his body and brain, hungry for earth, his heavenly flight detain. And yet the whole evolutionary march of mankind, if you really look at it, though it is true that outwardly, if you really look at it outwardly, we, have, we find the same story of war and struggle and victory and defeat and birth and death and birth and death, the march going on. Empires come and collapse. But inwardly, when we look at it, we see that there is a kind of evolution in man's inner being. A journey which starts with limited understanding, limited conceptions, collectively at least, and it grows and grows and grows. We are not talking here of individuals. Always in every age, in every country, or at least in every part of earth, countries is more uh, modern, recent. In every part of earth, in every age, in every race, if one may say so, there have been individuals who have held this light, this greater vision. They have been like uh, divine descents or involutionary beings coming from a higher plane, or simply beacons of light who have shown a greater truth. Sometimes it has been clothed in mystic language, sometimes in the language appropriate to that time, sometimes in stories and legends which have woven around that individual. But nevertheless, there is something which they have carried like a carrier. And what they have carried is the aspiration of earth. Around them, a mass of humanity like a darkness that surrounds a little light. Seeking it, afraid of it. Darkness is a, in a way a very interesting symbol. What it seeks most is what it's most afraid of. It seeks light. It's most scared of light because it finishes. Its existence is gone. And this seeking has taken a certain form in every age. And if we really look at existence through these ages, we will see how this this seeking has grown up as human beings have evolved. If you really cast a look not at the individuals now or in some special places, but at, at humanity at large, we see that in the early stages of humanity, the seeking for something beyond, something higher, something greater is there. But it is more and more appropriate to the age in which humanity has lived, to the, to the extent his thoughts have stressed. When humanity is more leaning towards the animal, the gods are also like an animal-like. They even have animal forms and animal shapes. As if all the qualities of the animal kingdom were embodied in a being who is super, super, but with these things. When human beings believed that we must punish those who hurt us and reward those who help us, God also was given that form. He was a God of wrath, a God of justice, or a God of charity. And whom did he punish? Those who were, um, who were not doing the right things. <laughs> whatever that was, but when they were not doing the right things, they were punished. Worse still, when they were not uh, praying to him, he was angry 
and he would punish them so he was a god who could be angry like us humans and it was very comfortable to have a god who could be angry <laughs> as long as he was not angry with us and a god who could be pleased with praising him because if we praise him he would reward us reward us with either in this life and if things didn't go well in this life then certainly hereafter hereafter is a very good nice way because <laughs> there is always a way to come out of the present situation and around it neat theories were built theories in which god was like a super ceo ceos have changed by the way their style i think they have learned a lot but we still have that notion of god as a judge who is busy punishing and rewarding sending us either to hell with an angry frown on his forehead or suddenly sending us in heaven with where we have plenty of uh, people to please us um, so this is being human concept it's not the total reality of god in fact it's more of a distortion of a deep truth the mother says at one place many of the early religions as not in their origin perhaps but as they were understood and interpreted um the being who ends up presiding over them is not really the divine being but something like a shadow which human beings cast against him against him and begin to see that as divinity further up the human quest we see another another way of looking at the divine man as he grows he obviously cannot hold this idea of god as a super judge he must graduate further and as he graduates further he begins to see god as the one illimitable existence beyond space and time something which is indefinable by the mind something which cannot be grasped something which is impersonal vast no name can be given to it no definition given to it nothing can actually uh, contain him any word spoken for in favor of what god is or what god is not is limits him so this is another kind of understanding of the divine and there is still further beyond that divine not only as an impersonality but as a universal and even a transcendent being and that brings a different perspective to our life because if divine is an impersonality if that which holds this existence is simply an impersonality then we are confronted with the root shock between what our life is and what that is that is impersonal we cannot relate with it that has no qualities and this world is nothing but a play of qualities in this world there are personal relations in this world there is joy and sorrow and struggle and everything and that seems to have no relation with this world at all but when we look at the divine as a transcendent being a different kind of story begins to emerge we begin to see all earth and creation and man himself as nothing but a distorted a broken reflection or maybe a shadow of that everything that we see here on earth and we see in man we see in the animal world in every creature that which we call as godlike and that which we call as undivine even in that we begin to see something like a broken reflection a distortion or a shadow of that reality that begins to put things in very different perspective we are here to recreate something which is like an original blueprint and all earthly journey begins to assume a new significance as it were it is a march towards a story whose original source and plot is concealed from our sight but towards which we are helplessly moving that is impelling us towards becoming that and then we begin to see 
another sense in this great unfolding. Again from Savitri, we have these beautiful lines. All our earth, all our life starts from the, all our earth starts from the mud and climbs to the sky. And love that was once an animal's want. Then a sweet madness in the rapturous heart and a happy comradery in the mind becomes a wide, spiritual, yearning space. The soul that loved man thrills to the love of God. So love starts its journey. It starts its journey. Where does love begin its journey? We, In our human concept, when we, we just take this one example to see what this unfolding is about. At a human level, we have all these things, words which have a human meaning, quite naturally, because we live within our own frames. So love for us means certain things. Of course, even within the frame of humanity, it means many different things. To somebody, it means care. To another person, understanding. To a third person, giving. To a fourth person, wanting. To a fifth person, depending, etc., etc. But if we take love in its origin, in its principle, as a force, it is the force that holds things, brings things together. And if we start looking at love from that perspective, we see that there is love in stones. And that's why probably one can take out music from stones, turn it into a beautiful work of art. Because wherever there is love, there is beauty and there is joy. These are the two left and the right arms of love. If joy and beauty have passed out, love is somewhere missing. It's not there. Love for God. Very often people think going to God is a very serious affair. Everybody should have long drawn faces. But it lights up the face with a beautiful smile. Where does the smile come from? From the heart that is consecrated to the divine. It gives so much joy. It's a joyous journey. The Gita puts it a glad heart. It makes the heart truly glad. So there is love in stones. And it holds the atoms together, makes form. The first birth of form is because of this great act of love. Love has gone into creation. But as it climbs further at the realm of life, it creates attraction. And wherever there is attraction, there is a contrary force, repulsion. They are nothing but the play of light and shadow. Wherever there is repulsion, there is attraction. One can equally say that. Very often, and that's the tragedy of human life, there is attraction first and repulsion afterwards. And when people are far, there is attraction. When they are close, there is repulsion. When they move far away, there is further attraction. And there used to be, at least in India, a simple um, method to say that, you know, if you want long-lasting love, so every girl in the household was advised after marriage she should go to the parents place and stay for some time so the husband understands the value that look I mean <laughs> this was a very simple formula to keep the marriage intact but if they stay together for a very long time <laughs> they have to really cross a very difficult passage basically uh, at the animal level it takes that form or if you use the Gita's terminology at the Rajasic level Shravinda puts it, um, uniting to separate and separating to unite. <laughs> Basically, that's the nature it takes, because at that level, it brings, tries to bring to things together, but only by the power of a vital charm. By its very nature, it cannot endure. It's something which, just as even in atom, love holds them together, but it disintegrates over a period of time, because there is a power which is constantly active, to put things away, but to that we'll come little later. Then in human beings, this love takes another form, because we are mentalized beings. We are not just moved by attraction and repulsion. That's not something, we are not just instinctive. We reason out and we try to reason out whether this is the best uh, best thing, whether this, this is companionship. And at still higher level, it takes the form of becoming one through sacrifice. This is one of the greatest acts of love which mothers know because by its very nature, motherhood involves at the most material level, mothers sacrifice the very matter to create another being. And so also inwardly, 
it's the great act of sacrifice which is the highest definition of human love because already in humanity we see we come closer and closer to what the divine intends it tends to take another view it's no more a horizontal thing it's from above below it is going down and holding things together by the law of sacrifice so we have this third ascent of love and of course we have the highest conception of love which yet is yet to manifest and that conception is love as the bridge between earth and heaven we talk about god's love and yet we talk about running away from earth running away from creation running away from life that's why perhaps we dubiously term these um, nice beautiful retreats we term them as retreats so i often wondered retreating from what and whom uh, he is everywhere in everything but i would rather add um integral yoga's strategic retreat <laughs> it is a strategic retreat so that we can return upon life and creation and earth with a greater force a purer energy a deeper love a more complete wisdom moving us so it's a retreat but for a return that in a way uh, is about integral yoga when mother was asked that you know how to find the divine you say divine is everywhere how to find him in this rush of life mother says acknowledges the difficulty she says yes my child it's so true in the ordinary life this world is full of poison you breathe it in the air we don't have to really do anything to breathe this poison because along with this love there is something else which is here a dark ambiguous shadow questioned all in savitri and um, because of that it's difficult the moment we move out from all sides these things come and uh, impinge upon the human consciousness we cannot help breathe and long long back she describes thus the atmosphere of paris i don't know what it would be now i have never been but i can understand it because it's the same story about every metropolis um india is not far behind <laughs> so you walk into a street she says and the whole atmosphere is full of desire she says you walk into a marketplace how many times we have noticed we walk into a market we have not thought of buying anything and we end up buying a whole lot of things why are we going to market i am just taking my friend along so the word window shopping has lost its meaning except for the poor ones who do window shopping to get out of their depression come back and get more depressed <laughs> because now they know what they don't have <laughs> so it's amazing the atmosphere of any city if we go just a little of course in a populated city i guess it's more because if nature um, material nature is less and human nature is more it definitely makes a difference because uh, in material nature there is still that purity preserved so she says my child you breathe that poison you can't help it that's why she says we had this monasteries so monasteries people retired for a while and they were meant to come back to the world but then what happened is that when people went to monasteries they found ah very nice at last we have a place a safe refuge a heaven where we can breathe freely not for long more human beings went to the monastery more and more human beings went to the same monastery after a while the monasteries began to breathe the human atmosphere god ran away fast <laughs> we have a story of <laughs> someone who was sitting in church and suddenly they had another church for another denomination and this person who was there in the inception of the church right from beginning felt very bad so he was saying lord christ what is it now i cannot come to this church anymore i have to go somewhere else i am told so lord appeared said my child where you sat 
So five years I've been here and now I have to go to another church, I'm told. He says, don't worry, I've been sent away from this church long back. So we both will go together now. Together because we'll find the true temple, which is nothing but the human body. This is another conception of the human body. It is not something to be discarded and thrown away. There are some mystic literature which sound like a perversity. They describe the human body in the goriest of terms. Well, looked at one side, it is. It has an animal side, it has a very stone-like side. This is true. But there is another dimension of the human body of which we are not aware, but which is there in, in certain ancient literature. It is the temple, it is the real temple. A chariot, sometimes described as a chariot. And who is the priest in the temple? Every temple has a priest. Unfortunately, priests are the most difficult clan and I do believe sincerely that the sign of new creation will be that four categories of people will vanish from earth. The lawyers who make sure that things never get settled. The fight continues ad infinitum. <laughs> the policemen, they make you feel so scared as if you have done a crime. If you go and tell them that, give a complaint, the first index of suspicion is on you. The doctors, of course. Go to a doctor and instead of being free from a disease, you feel very afraid. You were just feeling a little thirsty, more than usual. Maybe just going to the bathroom a little more often. Suddenly you discover that you have diabetes and you can have a heart attack, you can have a you know, paralysis and what not and you, know, you are very close to death. And of course the priest make you feel that there is such a distance between you and the Lord. Only if you say a particular prayer in a particular way, at a particular time, in a particular posture, then only you can get God. And if you are simply having a simple little seeking, well, you need a priest. Well, there is a true priest. Priesthood at one time was a very sacred thing. And it was told that never take it because to take priesthood means to take the burden of difficulty of a whole lot of human nature and to purify it. It was it's said in the Vedas that don't take to this task. It's a very, very difficult task. And who can perform it? That priest is inside the psychic being the soul within us. As long as the mind is the priest in man, our seeking will always move in endless circles. Because mind by its very nature cannot find truth. Firstly, because truth is integral and mind by its nature has to have either this or that. Take a simple thing. We are rational beings, so we believe God must be rational. And the first thing we learn as we grow through life that he's anything else but rational. Because if this is creation, we wonder what is the logic of creation. We of course try to make God very, very rational. Good man must always succeed in all his endeavors. How often we find good man failing in almost every endeavor. God must be rational and therefore the wicked must be punished and suffer. We don't always find it. We find them prospering. <laughs> so we of course start all kinds of things that, well, wicked person will suffer in some hell and the good man will be rewarded in heaven because it's comfortable for us. But essentially we don't try to understand what is God's logic. Sri says in one place, man must outgrow the early grammar of the intellect and discover the logic of the infinite. In the infinite wisdom, everything is used towards that great becoming. Nothing goes waste. Things that seem good and things that seem evil. Today morning, Narad was reminding of those beautiful lines in Savitri. Whether it seems good or evil to men's eyes, always for good the secret will works. Always for good. And within this temple, if mind is the seeking, Mind cannot because it cannot handle divergent data. God has to be either this or that. He must be according to my concept, otherwise he is not God. 
if somebody suffers therefore god cannot be shobindo puts another question poser in one of his aphorism when i see a good man suffer i say god is cruel then he says first i must be convinced that suffering is bad so we don't realize that we have made an assumption that assumption is based only on our convenience it's it's very convenient to believe that well suffering is is bad but uh, when we look at life how often suffering has the great experience of making us humbler chastening us purifying us this not that we should love suffering certainly not it's not a good thing but it is there as part of life and we cannot ignore it we cannot pass the burden of suffering to man that his karma therefore is suffering so shubhendu brings in this other dimension of the divine in which everything is leading us towards that great goal and what is that great goal that great goal is the transformation of this creature of mud and mire of this stone into a temple of the lord a temple divine and then we begin to see all our life as that process every time we face a little difficulty every time we feel a little blow we can say we are being chiseled this beautiful line in savitri when about fate that thy fate o king is a transaction done between thy soul and nature with god as the forcing arbiter the events that meet thee on thy road though they smite thy body and soul with joy and grief are not thy fate they touch the avail and pass even death can cut not short thy spirit's walk the soul the road thou choosest are thy fate so and then he goes on to say how the spirit grows mightier with each defeat the demiurges of the universe work and how they with their titanic hammer toil they hammer upon us and the spirit goes mightier with each defeat its godlike wings grow wide with every fall so every time we have a pain we have to struggle against an obstacle if we can experience the chiseling touch of god in one of his aphorisms he says if thou lovest me then strike me when thou strikest i know that thou lovest most so this is one conception but equally every time something beautiful happens in our life every time our hearts are full of joy and gratitude every time our thoughts stretches out towards infinitudes every time our will seeks something more beautiful something more hopeful nobler to be established upon earth we can equally feel that oh maybe a part of the temple has been cleansed and a beautiful image of a godhead at least of one of his emanations of the gods has been placed there this is the human journey chiseling cleaning purification and then the establishment of one or the other aspect of that divine till finally this whole being turns into a divine temple this is the great process which is going on and it's not going on now with man it is there happening right from the time creation has come in fact creation has been built for that pur- this purpose space and time have are the biggest temple of the lord the biggest temple is space and time the first temple and it's architecturally a super temple we don't know how many dimensions of space there are and the more we dwell even when we look at matter from the scientific point of view we just wonder this is the largest temple and how many dimensions seen and unseen hold it and 
the smallest temple of the Lord is the electron. In one of his poems, Shurabindu says, in that, speaking of the electron, Shiva in his fiery chariot rides. When we look at life from that perspective, the widest of the vastest and the smallest of the smallest, the infinitesimal and the infinite are two ends of one truth. And who is laboring to create this temple from time sempiternal? What is that force, that energy? What is that wisdom which is working to build space and time into abodes of the divine through the process what we call as evolution? That force, that force of love, that wisdom, that power is the power and wisdom and love of the Divine Mother. That is called as the Divine Mother. That is the term used. She is, the whole creation has sprung out of her. In fact, she has gone into the creation. It cannot sustain itself without that power. Behind every smallest element, everything that moves, expands, grows, and everything that collapses back into itself, the power that works and labors within it, the infinite Shakti, the mother of the worlds, that stands behind it. So this is another side which Sri Aurobindo brings in, the integral conception of the divine. The word integral at once means two things, three things, four things, many things. It means to start with not to create this division between life and God, between earth and the divine. They are two poles of one truth. The divine, who is beyond all conceptions, beyond all notions, beyond all is and is not, beyond time and timelessness, beyond space, beyond all that we can speak or think or conceptualize of him, yet, chooses his home in the tumults of the sense. There is such a beautiful line in Savitri. Loiters. Shrivindu used the word loiters. He loiters. In nature's instrument, loiters secret God. He is here, there, everywhere, building something, creating something. Sometimes he is working like a smith, a smithy, in his smithy. Sometimes he is correct, you know, making certain things right. Sometimes he is fitting something. And this is a fact of inner life. When we begin to look at our life from an inner point of view, when the inner eye awakens, many times things that are going on inside are revealed to us in the form of symbolic dreams. When cleaning is going on, we see, oh my God, so much muck is coming out. Actually, divine actually cleans. It's loitering in those parts and setting things right. So that transcendent which ruled the pregnant vast comes down, becomes this, enters into the smallest, tiniest of the tiny. This one sense of the word integral. The other that not only world and God but soul and nature are two poles of one reality. When we lean outside more and more, we enter into nature. When nature withdraws itself into quiescence, we enter into the state of the soul. That's why in meditation, one of the first thing is to quieten, quieten, quieten. But instead we make our eyes shut and make our minds more active. <laughs> it's That's how we are. We just become aware of what's going on inside. So, there are two poles of one reality. There are not two truths. There is one truth. There are not two things. There is one thing. And at a third level, the word integral means the divine in his static aspect and the divine in his dynamic aspect. The divine as knowledge and the divine as power. The divine as the vast impersonality which stands behind the universe, aloof, inactive, silent, vast, immutable, alone. Its occult cause, silently supporting all. Witness of our joy and grief is also an infinite power of becoming. 
and all dust is nothing but he who has chosen to become this infinitesimal grain of sand and to carry it upward in its great journey so when we look at life from that angle everything is an occasion for worship it's not only when we withdraw in a silent depths that we discover the divine who is deep inside us but in our everyday life of motion action thought feelings he can be realized he is there in the pauses twixt thought and he is also there in the thought he is in the silence which is in the depths of creation he is also in the word that springs forth from creation he is the dreamer and he is the dream he is the maker and the world he made so this is the integral conception of the divine and this is not a conference this is seeking we are all here so that we can strengthen each other seeking there are no speakers here there is only the divine is the speaker and there is no hearer here but divine is the hearer that is the spirit in which we should have the conference and everyone right from the little child who was so beautifully lugged on to the luggage van which his father was carrying mind you the child was working though he was lugged on he was filling his father's heart with love and joy and spreading joy everywhere his smile was a work suddenly you know people who were tired looked at him and felt happy that's it that's an offering it's a yagna so this concept of conference is a more mentalized thing but seeking is as we have seen mind if it seeks it cannot find the integral truth the seat of seeking is here in the depths of the heart in the flame that cancels death in mortal things the flame from which the child is new born so this seeking we bring here and we all unite in that seeking we eat that seeking we drink that seeking we sleep with that seeking we wake up with that seeking we speak with that seeking and we hear with that seeking and we seek that divine who though beyond all norms and forms beyond formlessness beyond concept and percept is yet in every concept and percept something of his shadow or his reflection is thrown i could just go on because there is nothing more beautiful than to just speak with joy about the lord and yet even if we were to speak through the history of time all the words that have been spoken it would total to nothing but a child's babble so let the babble stop and let the divine himself speak who he is and what he is and what is he doing with this earth and what is there in this earth as it happens i thought we will read out this passage but you know i feel like reading something else but i i will read out this passage and then go on to that something else which i feel inspired this seeking in earth savitri the earth goddess toils across the sands of time this is about the unfolding a being is in her home she hopes to know a word speaks to her heart she cannot hear a fate compels whose form she cannot see ignorant and weary and invincible she seeks through the soul's war and quivering pain the pure perfection her marred nature needs a breath of goddess on her stone and mire a faith she craves that can survive defeat the sureness of a love that knows not death the radiance of a truth forever sure and we inherit this seeking we are a double birth as child of earth we owe something to her this body she has formed but also as child of earth she has shared this aspiration which heavens have sown into her so we owe a double debt 
a debt to earth as the vedas put it and a debt to the gods but shobindo will speak to us about another debt and with that we will stop a mutual debt the master of existence lurks in us and plays at hide and seek with his own force in nature's instrument loiters secret god we can meet him anywhere because he is loitering everywhere he is not just hiding he is loitering what a beautiful expression i just love this expression he is just moving around round the corner we may meet him there he is suddenly we are filled with an aspiration and our life changes the imminent lives in man as in his house again we carry him everywhere and he is here this is a house changes the whole perspective of yoga how do we worship him have we lit the right incense of love and devotion and faith are our thoughts right that is the mantra with which we invoke him if we are full of things which are dark and negative and full of self defeat then we are not worshiping him we are throwing not incense but maybe smoke at the altar he has made the universe his pastimes field a vast gymnasium of his works of might all knowing he accepts our darkened state divine wears shapes of animal or man immortal dallies with mortality the all conscious ventured into ignorance the all blissful bore to be insensible incarnate in a world of strife and pain he puts on joy and sorrow like a robe and drinks experience like a strengthening wine the absolute the perfect the alone has called out of the silence his mute force where she lay in the featureless and formless hush guarding from time by her immobile sleep the ineffable puja of his solitude she the divine mother she aditi she the mother of all godheads and strengths she the mother of the worlds was within sleeping in that eternal hush and she is brought out from his own depths into the play and she comes into the play the absolute the perfect the immune oh the absolute the perfect the alone has entered with his silence into space he is not only transcendent but he is universal he has entered into space he has fashioned these countless persons of one self he lives in all who lived in his vast alone space is himself and time is only he this opens another dimension to the sense of integrality he is entered into space with his silence that's why we can suddenly feel his presence amidst everything sometime when we look at the stars like so many watch fires in the night we feel a vastness a silence speaking to us it is one way of god's presence one kind of meditation meditation is not only going within shobindo reveals that in synthesis meditation is also making growing vast into the world casting one's vision far and deep beyond the last receding stars 800 billion light years away what lies beyond it what lies beyond time before time was born 
What is that thread that links me through these countless, numberless lives and these varied life and forms and names? If for one moment we'll meditate upon that, we'll find all our suffering vanish like this. We'll suddenly come in contact with something which just does not act only like a balm. It, it just makes everything disappear in that vastness. The absolute, the perfect, the immune. One who is in us as our secret self, our mask of imperfection has assumed. Imperfection is a mask, pain is a mask, suffering is a mask. Error is a mask. And who dwells within this mask? The one. What is he doing with error and pain? Transmuting all experience into delight. Turning all error and wrecked falsehood into happy truth. That's how Shribna describes the divine being, the cosmic divine. A being lived, a presence and a power. One soul who was himself and all. And what he's doing from within, constantly by the simple act of his presence, his mighty presence, changing, changing despite all the resistance of the night, changing all this darkness into light. He has made this tenement of flesh his own, his image in the human measure cast. So even the earliest conceptions of man about God, closer to animal, closer to his vital self, closer to our mental self, they all have a meaning, they are stepping stones. But they are not the last rung of the journey. The last is only when we are able to reconnect earth and the supreme matter and spirit. That to his divine measure we might rise. So he he accepts our limited conception. Sri says in the synthesis, how shall we concentrate on him when we do not know him? Because God is beyond all conception and by concentrating on him we can know him. So then the question arises, how shall we concentrate on him whom we do not know? So Sri gives a very beautiful answer. He says it doesn't matter what initial conception we hold of him even the smallest ignorant faith the narrowest opening is enough but we must start even the smallest portal and then he says therefore the wise have never let any wicked gate close however small it may be when it opens to the divine it is something sacred faith is of all things the most sacred of things even the most ignorant faith Sometimes when people change ignorant faith with the illusion of mental knowledge, they make a mess of things. When people drink water, just one minute of digression, we come to Savitri. I grew up on the wells of the villages of India without knowing about MEBSs and typhoid. There was no problem till I went to the medical college and I was told this is dangerous. Even in America now, when I drink tap water, I ask twice, is it safe? This is what happens sometimes when, (laughs) this is the great fall. We are talking about that breath which distorts everything. Mother has spoken of the intrusion of the mind is the great fall described in the Bible. But how are we to recover? Not by going back to the animal spontaneity, but by going beyond the mind into a greater becoming. But that we have so many days, we leave it to that. So he wants us to rise to his divine measure. Then in a figure of divinity, the maker shall recast us and impose a plan of Godhead on the mortal's mold. Look at the word impose. He will wait till we are ready and impose. So he'll make us ready and then put it. It doesn't anymore depend upon us after a point of time. Lifting our finite minds to his infinite, touching the moment with eternity. This transfiguration is earth's due to heaven. A mutual debt binds man to the supreme. This is the beauty. This is not a one-sided debt. God also owes a debt. What is the debt? My children, you have chosen to go into the darkness, to change it into light. Here I come 
I'll make sure my stamp and seal and signature, Om, the signature of the Lord, will be there with you. Even in your hardest of toils, if you just step a little behind, you will hear the same eternal Om chanting in the silence of life. His nature we must put on as he put ours. We are sons of God and must be even as he. His human portion we must grow divine. Our life is a paradox with God for key. Thank you.